Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. April 13th, 2023, that shoddy abortion pill ruling edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C., doing something a little bit different this week. Very exciting. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hello. That's not the different part. Here comes the different part. Here comes the different part. The different part is that John Dickerson of CBS Primetime, John has COVID, unfortunately. And so Emily and I are going to try something new, which is we're, we didn't get a, another guest. It's just going to be the two of us. We're going to try a two-person gab fest. I don't know if we've ever done this before. We'll see how it goes. I'm excited. All the John super fans, though, are going to turn off the show right now. It's okay. Come back next week. We'll have no listeners. We'll have no listeners then. This week on the GabFest, the dueling abortion pill rulings and how the Supreme Court will reconcile them. Then the expulsion of two legislators from the Tennessee House and the growing signs that the GOP is, is kind of over democracy. And then how bad is Clarence Thomas's secret billionaire-funded luxury travel? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So maybe the judge shopping succeeded exactly as the pro-life activists hope. They brought a case in Amarillo, Texas, so that Judge Matthew Kazmarek would get it. And Kazmarek, as hoped, delivered last week what they hoped for, what they anticipated, issuing an injunction against the medication abortion drug Mifeprestone. I pronounced it correctly on the grounds that the FDA supposedly approved it hastily more than 20 years ago. Uh, Kazmarek's ruling immediately conflicted with a ruling an injunction in a separate lawsuit brought by 18 Democratic attorney generals, state attorney generals, in which a federal judge in Washington state barred the FDA from changing or restricting Mifeprestone distribution in those states while that lawsuit was in progress. We are set up for a massive legal tangle, certainly a Supreme Court showdown. And this morning, as we got on, we're actually starting a little bit late because Emily was reporting on the Fifth Circuit, which did what, Emily? The Fifth Circuit issued a ruling saying that part of the district court judge's ruling was invalid. I'm going to use incorrect legal terms just to be super clear. The part in which the district court judge, Matthew Kazmarek, stayed or basically stopped the FDA's approval of this uh, one of the two abortion pills, Mifepristone, the part where he did that going back to the FDA's original approval in 2000, The Fifth Circuit said, no, can't do that. That part is barred on account of the passage of time. But the Fifth Circuit allowed to continue, held in place the part of the district court's rulings that um, invalidated, in effect, the FDA's changes since 2016. So in 2016, the FDA said you can, providers on label can use mifepristone up to 10 weeks. Previously, on label use had been seven weeks. 
And then um, the FDA in 2021, first because of COVID and then in a permanent rule change, said that people don't have to make in-person visits to clinics to receive this drug like they used to. It can be sent over the mail. There are a couple of other related changes, but those were the major changes. And th- the, those changes really broadened access to mifepristone. And so that's now what's at issue if this ruling were to go into effect, that is, right? Because of the conflict with the Washington court's ruling that you talked about earlier, it's not at all clear how this actually shakes out on the ground yet. I just want to talk for a second about why the Fifth Circuit ruling might not go into effect. So one reason is this dueling ruling in Washington, where a federal judge said, in response to the suit from 17 states and Washington, D.C., the FDA may not do anything to change access to mifepristone. That was an official order that conflicts in those 18 states with this Fifth Circuit decision. Another important issue here is that the FDA has discretion about enforcing laws. During COVID, as a kind of COVID emergency mechanism, the FDA lifted the in-person visit requirement for mifepristone and misoprostol under its own enforcement discretion before it made a kind of permanent rule change. And I was talking to David Cohen, a law professor at Temple who writes about this issue a lot, and he was saying, look, in light of Dobbs, the FDA could make a similar decision to use its enforcement discretion not to enforce this Fifth Circuit ruling. I also think that's a big lift for the Biden administration to not enforce a court order. And so first, the Biden administration is going to really try to appeal, I am sure, and ask for guidance from the Supreme Court about what to do about these dueling court rulings. Let's go back, Emily, because the Kazmark ruling really, it was at once completely unsurprising. I think everyone anticipated that Kazmark would do this. And yet also in its broadness and its sweep and its kind of adoption of the language of the anti-abortion extremes was surprising. So just like quickly summarize what it was that Kazmarek himself did rather than what the Fifth Circuit did. Yeah. I mean, what Kazmarek did was as a matter of law in several ways, kind of just beyond. Like, I mean, if you really want to understand the legal weeds of what is wrong with Kazmarek's ruling, I really recommend reading a long Substack post by Adam Unikowski, who is a lawyer. He happens to be a former Scalia clerk. Slate very wisely, because this is a good post, picked up part of it. Um, so that's like the complete version. The The quick summary part is that um, – A court has never told the FDA to withdraw its approval of a drug before just based on the court's own decision that the FDA did it wrong. That's just not how um, administrative law works. Agencies have a lot of discretion. They build up a record. They do a review. Um, Then the courts review that with some deference to the decisions agencies have made, and they don't make sudden rulings like this. And because it was so dramatic and startling and it seems unprecedented, there are a lot of um, drug company officials, there were more than 400 of them that signed a letter saying like, no, 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 this is not how we do it. And this is going to totally unsettle and destabilize the way drug approval and pharma regulation works in the United States. This cannot stand. The Fifth Circuit ruling (laughs) 
is not that huge amount of drama, but it, if it went into effect, it would still have enormous consequences for the provision of drugs, and it still rolls back these changes that the FDA made out after a lot of study. So it will be interesting to see if the general response from pharmaceutical executives is similarly um, outraged and distressed as a result of this Fifth Circuit ruling, which could freeze in place if it goes into effect some, you know, pretty severe restrictions on access to mifepristone inside the United States from U.S. manufacturers and companies. Um, yeah, don't get pharma angry. You do not want to piss off pharma. Pharma is an incredibly powerful lobbying group. It is a source of an enormous amount of U.S. national wealth. And uh, the I don't. I think the idea. I think it is. It seems prohibitively unlikely that the Supreme Court would would casually overturn an FDA approval whole hog in this way because it creates such uncertainty if you're a drug company that is planning your research, it's planning around, you know, what the the revenue streams that are going to come from a particular pharmaceutical to think that at any minute a single judge willy-nilly 20 years later can say, sorry, not this time, can't use this anymore. That seems outrageous. There is really actually 30 years of research, um, but certainly there is a couple of decades of research about the safety and effectiveness of mifepristone used in combination with mesoprostol, which is the more available, basically prescription, normal prescription drug um, that in combination is the kind of gold standard for a medication abortion. So there's lots of research here. It's as if that research doesn't matter and the FDA's review of it doesn't matter in the eyes of the Fifth Circuit as well as the district court. I mean, the Fifth Circuit says, well, look, people who take these drugs experience severe cramping and bleeding. That's really bad in the eyes of the Fifth Circuit, as opposed to like the necessary way in which miscarriage takes place, right? A medication abortion is effectively feels like an induced miscarriage. And so the Fifth Circuit says, well, because of all of that, you know, discomfort, pain, we're just going to say that people have to use these drugs the way they were used in 2016. But of course, 2016 is before Dobbs and before mail order abortions became the most important part of the battle over the post-Royal abortion landscape in the United States. So there's just this real disconnect here with reality. It's genuinely like crazy that 23 years after, whatever it is, 20 plus years after this medicine was approved, that you can go back and be like, oh, now it's time. Now I can sue. I mean, how could this not be a statute of limitations issue? It just is ridiculous to think that you could bring this case 20 years later. Yeah. So the Fifth Circuit did agree with that last part, that the suit is what's called time barred. But because the FDA made changes to um, the restrictions on mifepristone in 2016 and 2021, the Fifth Circuit says those are up for grabs. It's okay to effectively, if this goes into effect, roll back those changes. And so you know, one question here is whether the Supreme Court is going to freeze in place the Fifth Circuit ruling the way they did. Remember SB8, the, you know, abortion law in Texas that effectively ended abortion after six weeks in Texas um, a long time or, you know, months before Dobbs. And what happened that time was the Supreme Court just didn't rule. And so this um, lower court ruling, it was, again, the Fifth Circuit that had a real impact on people's ability to access abortion was allowed to stand in place. And that was an equally novel um, legal theory that the Supreme Court just kind of left there. And so I think that is a big question. 
what you have on the other side this time are the interests of the pharmaceutical industry we were just talking about, which really are also affected by this Fifth Circuit ruling. And, you know, the sort of deep question here is, in American law, is abortion just going to have to play by totally different rules? Are we going to pretend that the rules for approving drugs and medications and the way we think about safety and effectiveness in the abortion sphere is just wholly divorced from everything else? And then it doesn't matter how safe and effective the pills are, how well the FDA did its job. We're just going to have different rules because conservative judges are running the show and they don't like abortion. Yeah. I mean, what's so funny, of course, is that the the Dobbs ruling was all about like, this is now up to the states. Like, we're going to leave this up to the states. States are going to decide. Like, I guess not. I guess we're not leaving this up to the states because this is a national. We're going to nationally enjoin these the use of these drugs in all the states which still allow abortion because these drugs are not even allowed. You can't use these drugs in states which don't allow abortion. Right. Because it's illegal. (laughs) Right. In states, in the 13 states that have banned abortion and in Georgia after six weeks, you cannot have a medication abortion in Georgia after six weeks everywhere else at all. It's already illegal. And so, and again, I want to keep saying it's not clear this ruling is going to go into effect. But if it did, if this Fifth Circuit ruling were to become the law of the land, it would mean that Clinics could keep doing medication abortions on label up to seven weeks. That means complying with, you know, all the FDA's requirements. They could keep doing them off label up to 10 weeks the way they already do or up to 12 weeks in some cases because doctors use drugs off label all the time and they know that the safety record is strong and they could just keep going. But we don't know how they're going to handle this that ruling if it were going to go into effect. And the big impact here is really the idea of mailing the pills becoming illegal in the United States. So at the moment, there are two drug manufacturers called um, Danco and Gen Biopro. How are they going to respond to this? Are they going to decide they can't use the mail to send the drugs? And then there are a couple mail order pharmacies, which are similarly going to have to make decisions about what to do if this goes into effect. And then you have all the online providers. Telehealth abortion provision has become a much higher percentage of the total than it was before Dobbs because there are all these people stuck in states um, where they can't get abortions. They can not get the abortions mailed to them entirely legally by American providers, but they can have them mailed to friends. There are ways that people are finding their ways to the pills, even domestically. Um, And that is a huge change and um, would really affect how all this plays out in people's lives. We should talk about the international market, which um, there's an amazing feature in the New York Times today by Alison McCann, who's a graphics editor at the Times. And she did a great reporting project showing how these pills are being mailed from mostly India, but some other countries as well. And they're coming to these middlemen providers in the United States who are just people who want to make money. Um, And in some ways, you look at this kind of amazing story and you think, well, capitalism is solving the problem of abortion provision. The pills, as long as they are what they say they are, um, can come in through all these different um, distributors and mechanisms, and there's money to be made. I mean, at one point, Allison reports that she was, you know, as a reporter, asking one of these middlemen distributors how he did his job, and he said, "Well, do you want to sell for me?" And then he writes her a text that says, uh, "He writes her a text that says you can buy a Tesla. Like you'll make enough money from us, you'll be able to buy a Tesla really quickly. Come work with us." 
So that's a really interesting part of the story. And if if the courts cut off domestic mail order access to the pills, then that international market is just going to grow. Before we end this, misoprostol is used safely for abortions in lots of countries on its own. So is that a possibility if if, uh, mifeprestone is barred here? Yeah, if this ruling were to go into effect, um, mesoprostol-only abortions would still be available in the United States. The ruling doesn't affect access to meso. The issue there is that this is not the gold standard of care. I mean, if you really care about discomfort to women as they experience um, the unpleasantness of an induced miscarriage, then you want women to have access to both of these drugs because meso-only abortions... um, they're just more uncomfortable. People are more likely to have side effects like nausea and chills and diarrhea. It's harder for them to tell when the pregnancy is over quickly. And those things matter to people's actual experience. So if the pain and suffering of American women is actually on the minds of these judges, then you want these, um, you want both drugs available. However, meso-only abortions, um, you know, especially early in the first trimester are safe and effective and they will continue to be available in the United States. So <laughs> that's the irony here. I mean, they will be continue to be available domestically in the United States as opposed to through international providers um, and the mail. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest every week, of course. You can become a member by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, uh, and you get no ads on any Slate podcast. You get various bonus episodes of Slate podcasts. Our, uh, our extra segment this week is going to be about whether it is wrong to own Hitler memorabilia as Clarence Thomas benefactor Harlan Crow does. Is that a is that in itself wicked? Um, go to slate.com slash GapFest Plus and become a member. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos it is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
On Wednesday, Shelby County officials voted to restore Justin Pearson to his seat in the State House of Tennessee less than a week after he and Justin Jones, another young black Democratic legislator, were expelled for disrupting legislative business to abet a gun safety protest in the Tennessee House chamber. Jones had already been restored to his seat, restored temporary fashion, I should note, restored to a seat by a unanimous vote of the Nashville City Council. The Tennessee action brought by Republican, the Republican supermajority in the legislature um, to expel these two was unprecedented. It was also really dumb politically. It has caused a huge backlash and it has highlighted the anti-democratic tendencies in certain Republican-controlled state governments. So Emily, um, we can talk about the the two Justins, um, but there's something more broadly that's just fishy and unsettling going on with widespread Republican efforts to undermine Democratic institutions. There was the efforts to limit progressive prosecutors. There's state takeovers of school boards in blue cities, blue cities that are in red states. Um, there's Tennessee, for example, moving to change Nashville's form of government to restrict the local power of a city. Um, there are partisan election boards being created in places where they had been nonpartisan. Uh, in Kentucky, the Republican legislature removed the ability of the Democratic governor to appoint someone to a vacant Senate seat. Um, there's rampant gerrymandering at the state level uh, that is that is putting state legislators out of commission as places where where there can be actual competition. What's happening? What is going on? Why is this happening now? I mean, in some ways, it's been happening for the last few years, right? We've been worrying about subverting the will of the voters. So I was thinking about a few years ago when Tony Evers, who's the governor of Wisconsin, when he first got elected, the response from Scott Walker, the outgoing Republican governor, and the very heavily gerrymandered Republican-controlled legislature in Wisconsin was to strip the governor of some of his powers because now he was a Democrat. So we're seeing now similar moves on the local level, and they're becoming more and more common in the way that you said. And basically what happens is that a state Republican-controlled legislature that is represents more rural and mostly white voters, right, because that's how it's been gerrymandered, it comes and tries to grab control of some aspect of local representation that is targeting blue cities that are, you know, urban, where there are a lot of Democratic voters, where there are a lot of Black and Latino voters. And so then you strip those people of their power in some way, shape, or form. It's like a pure power grab, and, and it relies on people being kind of sleepy about the organs of democracy and how it all works. And that was what kind of amazing about the backlash to what the Republicans did in Tennessee. I mean, I think one way to think about it, it was that such an obvious overreach. I mean, right, so the facts here are that these three uh, Democrats in the legislature broke the rules of order by protesting the lack of action on gun safety by this Republican-controlled legislature. You could imagine some, like, minor punishment for this. It's a rule infraction, sure, like censure them or in some way. But no, this was an expulsion. And then, I mean— this is the part that I find so shocking because it's just so blatant. There are two black men and a white woman, and it's the two black men who get kicked out of the legislature and the white woman is allowed to stay. And they're, they all participated in the protest. And the kind of made up reasons for treating her differently 
are not persuasive. And so then you have this like stark, just kind of race-based, um, what looks like just sort of retaliatory tactic here. So I think that was a bridge too far and has drawn all this national attention. And then, of course, we have the really interesting move in both Memphis and Nashville of sending back the Justins into the legislature, where presumably they're going to be allowed to serve because it would be so bananas for the state legislature to again try to eject them. What's also another sort of component of that, which I found irritating and offensive was the likening of the protests that were taking place in the Tennessee Capitol to the Tennessee chambers to the January 6th protest. And the Republicans were, were calling this as bad as January 6th or worse than January 6th. And it's just like, wow, that is a, that is a real grotesque uh, move. It's something totally different. We talked about last week uh, when we were talking about Israel, um, the way in which different countries constitute their their balance of powers separately. And one of the ones we didn't talk about, but which really struck me this week is, and you you were talking about it, is that we have federalism in this country. So we have a we have a we have state power and we have national power. And these are arrayed against each other. And one of the one of the protections that United States has against sort of um dictatorship is that there are these states which have pretty potent powers of their own to resist a national federal power. But we also are seeing in a lot of states now a kind of federalism on steroids, which is that the state is the unit and it's crushing these subunits within it. So one really distinctive form of American democracy is that we actually distribute power in layer after layer. It's like it's like a croissant. It's like laminated. So you have you have power at the national level, you state level, but county level, city level. Uh, uh, within cities, you have di- you know units of, of power within cities, uh, legislative districts. You have, and where I live, an ANC advisory neighborhood commissions. You have also um, sort of semi-governmental bodies like these, the like uh, uh, an HOA. And what the states are doing, because they actually, the state is the constituent thing. It is the power. States are crushing these other aspects, these other lower levels of democracy. And in fact, the lower levels of democracy, like what happens at your town, your town government, how your town manages its school, how your town manages its uh, its garbage collection, how your town manages police force is a lot more important to you than how your state does or how the nation does. And to crush the power at the grassroots, at the lowest level where the democracy takes place, is it's just a bad precedent. It's not good. Like we we want there to be functioning subunits of democracy. You want democracy to like cities to govern themselves for the most part, and you know have to deal with states for things that are truly state matters, but to govern themselves for the things that are urban and city matters, and for states to to step in and do this to cities is a is a bad thing. I mean. One reason we have that kind of local control and power over local affairs is we want people to be able to participate in the democracy, right? You can go to the meeting of your neighborhood advisory council or your city or county government much more easily than you can travel to the state capitol and try to have an effect on a whole legislative body in which there isn't one person like a mayor or a county commissioner or a district attorney who is accountable just to you, to your local place of living. And these measures are changing all of that. They're also pretty clearly retaliatory. I mean, I wrote last week for the New York Times about a number of bills in Republican states, including 
Georgia and Missouri and Texas that are targeting um, progressive prosecutors. So these are prosecutors elected, again, in these urban metropolitan areas, lots of Democratic voters, lots of Black and Latino voters. And the prosecutors came into office and they did things like say, I'm not going to prosecute low-level marijuana offenses. Now these state legislatures want to take away that kind of discretion from them. They're saying you can't promise not to prosecute a whole category of crimes, and we're going to remove you from office if you do that. And maybe we'll just remove you from office for some other reason while we feel like it. I mean, some of these bills really go quite far in just making it seem like you can just remove people. Um, And, of course, there's an example here from the Pennsylvania state legislature, which tried to impeach Larry Krasner, the district attorney in Philadelphia. I should say my sister Dana works for Larry Krasner. So I watched this impeachment proceeding pretty closely. And effectively, you know, one issue here is it used to be that when you removed people from office, whether it was someone like the Justins in Tennessee or a district attorney, anyone, it was because they were a criminal. They'd been convicted of corruption or bribery or sex abuse in some way, they had done something truly outrageous. Now this is just, we don't like the way you're doing your job because our politics are different. And that is a sea change in the way these issues work in American democracy. I mean, is there any way that this gets rolled back without undoing the the gerrymandering that that, uh, is so prevalent in so many states? I mean, I think, I I guess there are two different models. There's a model in Texas or or um, maybe increasingly in Florida, uh, even in Tennessee, where these are really are increasingly quite conservative states. And the reason that, 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 that the Tennessee government is red is not because it's gerrymandered. It's red because like more people in Tennessee are Republicans than Democrats right now. Um, and they're using majoritarian power. So that's one example, one way it's happening. But there's this other way, which if you think about Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Georgia, where the state is kind of up for grabs politically, and it's been gerrymandered. The, the, the distribution of power, North Carolina, the distribution of power is such that the Republicans have way disproportionate power given compared to their population, and they're using that disproportionate power in in strong, overreaching ways. And those feel to me like they're two slightly different case studies. Yeah, I think you're You're right about that. I mean, one way they're connected is that in order to do, you know, for example, what the Tennessee legislature just did, you have to have a supermajority. So even if the Republicans would be in control kind of no matter what of the legislature in Tennessee, given the politics right now of Tennessee, the gerrymandering allows for the uber control that then makes these moves you know, on the table in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be. Right. North Carolina is also like that, too. Totally. Yes, exactly. So there are a number of examples, and they're really important. I mean, Wisconsin comes to mind as well. And there's a way in which they're connected, that the gerrymandering, um, you know, amps up the power in most states, given the way they're configured right now, of Republican legislators that um, creates an opportunity for these kinds of moves that wouldn't otherwise exist. So I'm really not sure how you prevent them if you don't roll back the gerrymandering. Of course, the basic issue for rolling back the gerrymandering is to create just a total upswell of um, opposition among voters. And yet the problem with the gerrymandering is that it allows the minority party to stay in rule despite that upswell. So here again, Wisconsin is interesting. We just had this Wisconsin Supreme court um, election in which 
the Democratic, it was nonpartisan officially, but effectively the liberal candidate won handily. But that was a statewide race that kind of jumps over the whole problem of gerrymandering. It doesn't have a single bit of effect on how the legislature is composed. And that is an enormous challenge um, for, you know, local organizers um, across the country right now. So many of my depressed feelings about American democracy come back to this idea of the big sort that we don't live next to the people who are next to people who are different from us anymore. We have no contact with people who are different from us. And what it does is like, if you think of like, oh, Indiana is a red state. Oh, Indiana is such a red state or Texas is a red state or whatever. There's no, or California is a blue state. Like that's not really true. It's like what it is, is that Indiana is a state where there are lots of disproportionately compared to the country of rural uh, voters. And they have, but they have cities which have like distinct, heavily democratic areas, which have different a way of wanting to do things. And similarly in California, like, yes, there are these massive cities which are overwhelming democratic, but there are huge numbers of Republicans who live in California. I think there are more Republicans in California than like in any other state except Florida and Texas or something, but they have no power because of, of, the way we treat things, the people who end up ruling the states don't really ever interact with these others, whether they're rural, whether they're urban, because it's because of how we live. And it just, I feel like it is, a, it's a, it's an accelerant for all kinds of bad aspects of, of American life right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. There are a few states, including California, that have tried to address this with nonpartisan redistricting commissions, just to see it for one second from the point of view of the blue cities, which is my own personal orientation. There has been a bargain, right, where like if you live in Philadelphia or Austin, you get to have a lot of local control that sort of keeps the forces of the conservatives at bay. And part of that is that you are, in a lot of ways, the economic engine for your state, right? You're the urban center where there are a lot of jobs, where there's a lot of um, interaction among diverse groups that are at least racially and ethnically diverse and class diverse, even if they're not super politically diverse. And now that bargain is really being threatened. Right. I mean, that's what you're seeing in these states like Tennessee or these um, bills about prosecutors in a state like Texas. You're saying to, you know, Memphis and Nashville, no, you can't have your representative. We're going to, you know, embarrass that person. You can't have the kind of local control you had anymore in Nashville over like your local airport. That's another move that they made. And that's really changing the bargain of what it feels like to live in a blue city in a red state. But there's this fantasia, I think, Emily, that people will, oh, they'll vote with their feet and they won't go and uh, live in these cities because it would be, you know, it'd be so unpleasant to have to live in a city where abortion access is limited or so unpleasant to live in a city where the airport authority is controlled by Republicans. But in fact, if you look like those cities are thriving, like tons of people are moving to Florida, tons of people are moving to Texas, tons of people are moving to North Carolina, to educated people who are working in growing industries are moving to the places which where these political um, changes are happening most acutely. It is not the case that the there's going to be enough of a political backlash that people won't move there. At least not so far. Which is fascinating, right? I mean, in some sense, it, that could all be good. It's an antidote to the problem of the big sword, at least somewhat, right? That at least, like, you have lots of people in the country moving into these 
states like Texas and Arizona and Georgia, and maybe that changes the politics eventually, or at least it has people talking to each other um, across these political lines. I'm not sure. But it is really, I mean, it's not that surprising, right, that most Americans wouldn't look up their state and local law differences before they move. People move for reasons that feel much more personal to them, their families, their jobs, et cetera. I mean, think about something like Medicaid access, which seems like it should be a huge deal, especially for poor people when they make um, decisions about where to live. And I'm not sure we really have much evidence that it actually does affect those choices. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. God bless ProPublica. Extraordinary report last week revealed through very dogged reporting how Justice Clarence Thomas, who fronts as an everyman who just loves a Walmart, has taken incredible hospitality from a conservative billionaire named Harlan Crow. Also, how many conservative billionaires are there? There's so many conservative billionaires. You just hear about a new one every week. There's some other conservative billionaire you've never heard of. Anyway, uh, Thomas took a 21-day yacht trip in Indonesia, which which properly would be valued at half a million dollars. Private jet trips. He went to visit Emily at Yale for three hours. Uh, that was a $70,000 trip. He did not. He's had frequent week-long stays at Crow's New York estate top ridge surrounded by conservative conservative luminaries like Len Leo. Uh, Crow has also given major gifts to Thomas, a Bible owned by Frederick Douglass, all that and more. And none of it, well, the Bible was reported, none of it reported on disclosure forms. So Emily, did Thomas break any law or any judicial code of ethics? I mean, it certainly appears possible that he broke a law called the Ethics in Government Act, which passed after Watergate, and said that public officials, including justices of the Supreme Court, were supposed to report gifts of over, I believe, the very specific amount of $415. Lots of experts, including several that ProPublica quoted in this um, really fabulous piece of reporting, just Side note about this reporting, it clearly relied on a lot of people who used to work for Harlan Crow, like, I don't know, the sailors on these cruises and the people who manned the jets. And like, I love that part of this, that the reporters um, found those folks and got them to talk. Tip your private jet stewards, people. Especially probably the ones that you let go and who don't work for you anymore. Um, anyway... So it does look like the Ethics in Government Act is in play here. And Thomas's response to that was to make this quite vague statement. Well, when I first got to the court, I talked to some colleagues about whether I had to disclose this kind of what he calls private friend hospitality, and people said no. But it seems really clear from these experts that actually things like a cruise, a private jet trip are absolutely covered by the Ethics in Government Act and should have been reported. And maybe my favorite fact in all of this is that 
years ago in the late 90s and early 2000s, some of this beneficence from Harlan Crow to Clarence Thomas was reported because Thomas did disclose it early on, on his disclosure forms. And there was press about it, and he just stopped disclosing it. So, you know, he clearly kind of made a bet, and it went pretty well for him, lo, these many years in between. But now these facts look like a real problem. And then Another problem here is that it's not actually clear that he viled the code of judicial ethics only because, or primarily because, it doesn't necessarily apply to the Supreme Court. There's no enforcement mechanism. They've never adopted it. And so the justices get to basically make up their own rules. And yet again, we're seeing what a problem that is for the appearance of fairness and the appearance of impartiality, right? I mean, Thomas can say, and Harlan Crow can say, we never talked about cases. None of this influenced my rulings in any way. But it just looks fishy. And looking fishy, that kind of appearance problem, is supposed to be addressed by the Code of Judicial Ethics. I have so many thoughts about this. First of all, I found it completely unsurprising. Um, Supreme Court justices are poorly paid compared to most fancy lawyers. And uh, you would. it is not at all surprising that they find a way to move in circles the to move in the circles of the rich move in the circles of the kinds of people they used to socialize with and the way they do it is they are gifted things and it and i i do have occasionally in my life like remember hearing about oh these supreme court justices you know going to a conference on Euros, european jurisprudence and it just happens to be held in siena at some you know seven star hotel in siena and you're like oh yeah a conference on european jurisprudence my ass it's just like this is your fancy vacation um but but what thomas is doing is a whole other level like this is like a whole next level like really specialized form of of uber rich traveling but i was thinking like is this more harmful or less harmful than traditional bribery like crow's point and thomas's point is crow never had any business before the court he's he is not he's not talking to thomas about cases he has before the court involving his real estate empire because he doesn't have cases before the court and therefore it is harmless um because it directly, it doesn't directly cause a corrupt outcome in a case. And that's true. Like that is, that's probably true. There's no direct line from something that Thomas is doing with Crow to Thomas voting uh, for Crow's interest or Crow's best friend's interest. As far as me, I believe that. I believe that. But what's so harmful is that we know, like we, any human being who knows that social networks and acculturation are the most powerful tools for for cohesion persuasion. Thomas obviously is already sympathetic to conservative issues. I mean, he's a conservative justice. He's appointed. But when you're bathed in champagne, when you're when you're served, you know, wine, when you're fed its caviar, when you're flown in its jet, when you're fumigated by its cigars, you become so much more a part of this movement. You become so much more reliable. They don't, they don't need to know how, you know, they don't need to to bribe Thomas to know he will vote in this way because they have they've completely co-opted him by putting Thomas in this environment and like surrounding him with these with these lavish things and then also with these kinds of people like they it guarantees that Thomas will behave in a certain way. I mean this is the same topic we were talking about a minute ago. This is the big sort. It's like who is Thomas's world? Thomas's world is rich conservative people. It's a really tiny cost to guarantee 
that his worldview is completely their worldview. And that's a much worse form of corruption, I think, than just pay somebody and they'll they'll vote for your your uh, power plant to be uh, violate zoning law. Right. I mean, if nothing else, it breeds deep cynicism about the courts and about um, claims to impartiality and being above politics that judges rely on to have their authority. In Thomas's case, there's also the additional factor of his wife, Ginny Thomas, and the way in which her political activities have been very right wing. And then you have the further complication, which is that at least in one case, there is this question about an outcome, about a Thomas vote, right? I mean, a couple of years ago, the court had to decide whether to rule that a whole lot of texts related to January 6th, a lot of communications, were going to get turned over or not. Um, And this was as part of the Justice Department investigation or maybe the congressional investigation um, into what happened to January 6th. And it was eight to one in favor of turning over these materials. Thomas was a lone dissenter. And then the materials get turned over. And lo and behold, they include text to and from Ginny Thomas with various Republican officials. That is a personal interest. And he was the only justice who voted in that manner. He did not recuse himself. And so he has actually made himself vulnerable to a real outcome-based question here about how he conducts himself as a justice. But that's not because Harlan Crow was bribing him. That's because he's married to Ginny Thomas. Like, that's a different it's a, that is a separate issue. He should have recused himself because he should have recused himself from something involving his wife, but not because Harlan Crow and conservatives are giving him money. Totally agree. But it's all sort of part of the Justice Thomas problem, right? I mean, the fact that he was, let's just call it sloppy about that recusal decision makes it harder, I think, to trust him when he says there's nothing to see here in terms of how I've actually made my rulings. Um, You may be right that there is no direct connection and it's all just about kind of soaking in the lap of conservative luxury. But the fact that we have that ruling suggests that it... In that case, it went beyond that, and that is should be a real issue, and yet it seems to be unreachable. I mean, do you think the Justice Department should open an investigation here into whether Thomas violated the Ethics and Government Act? I mean, what's so crazy is to think, like, you know, what, what legions are going to enforce this? Like, they're going to drag Thomas to court? What court is going to hear it? I just don't see how it's even po- possible. They seem They do seem to me to be actually above the law, which is why they should be people of unimpunable ethics. I mean, Abe Fortas resigned from the Supreme Court in 1969 after a controversy involving him accepting $20,000 from some rich financier while that guy was being investigated for insider trading. Now, that's not the same as the allegations about Crow and Clarence Thomas, but it is indicative that embarrassment and shame um, mattered in a way that it doesn't seem to now. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, it's like you and I have just had cocktails, just the two of us. What are you going to chat about? I just read a novel that I thought was really interesting um, called Vladimir by Julia May Jonas. And I don't want to give too much away, but it's basically um, a novel set in the academy, a small college in New York State. The author uh, teaches, I think, at Skidmore. I was thinking of like Bard and Vassar. And it's about two couples and how they become intertwined. And it's really about being a woman in your late 50s because that's the situation of the narrator. I am not quite in my late 50s, but I just really ate up this novel. I had issues with it by the end, but um, it's just a perspective that one doesn't 
hear enough in novels, I think. So I recommend this book as like a conversation starter and just for thinking. Anyway, Vladimir by Julia May Jonas. I have three super quick chatters. First of all, if you are in D.C. and you're going to be in D.C. on Saturday, on Saturday afternoon is one of my favorite activities that I do in D.C. It's the D.C. sing-along. If you go to dcsingalong.com, dcsingalong.com, you can sign up. It's a chance to get in a group and sing together. And it's really, really fun. So this Saturday afternoon in D.C. That's number one. Number two, uh, watching a fantastic TV show. I'm last to it. Yes, you have you read Bad Blood. You listened to the Dropout podcast. You read 78 stories about, about Elizabeth Holmes. And yet the Dropout TV series starring Amanda Seyfried as Elizabeth Holmes is so good. It is so good. It is amazing. I realize that it's been out for a while and I just tuned into it because my my daughter said, oh, you should really watch the show. It's really good. Even if you know the story of Theranos, it's awesome. Finally, uh, I saw the movie Air this past weekend. Actually, I saw it in New Haven. My kids wanted to see it. So we went to see Air, which is good. I don't want to talk about it. There are problems with the movie. But if you were a child of the 1980s, the soundtrack is unbelievable. It is so great. There is so much of the music that if you're in your early 50s that we grew up on, like Time After Time, Born in the USA, Blister in the Sun, All I Need is a Miracle, Sister Christian. How, when's the last time you heard the song Sister Christian? Money for Nothing, uh, Jump. It's awesome. The movie's totally solid too, but the music rocks. Listeners, you have uh, sent chatters to us. And our listener chatter this week comes from David Foreman, who can pretend to be John Dickerson. David Foreman tweeted to us at at Slate GabFest, or he emailed us. I think he emailed us at GabFest at Slate.com. So what's your listener chatter, David Foreman? Hi, David, Emily, and John. This is David Foreman from West Philadelphia. And I have a story about sparrows to recommend called Meet the Little Brown Bird That Holds a Mirror Up to Humanity. It is by Rosemary Moscow, and the article appeared last week in the Audubon website. The Sparrow War was a decades-long 19th-century ornithological throwdown involving prominent bird experts arguing over the introduction of the house sparrow from the UK to North America. The house sparrow, now numbering over one billion worldwide, was introduced to combat a booming caterpillar population in our cities. The debate got very heated. Even William Cullen Bryant was involved with a pro-house sparrow poem called The Old World Sparrow. We hear the note of a stranger bird that ne'er till now in our land was heard. A winged settler has taken his place with Teutons and men of Celtic race. He has followed their path to our hemisphere. The old world sparrow at last is here. It gets worse, and as you might tell from the introductory stanza, the debates about sparrows from Europe mapped onto anti-immigration alarm of the time. Looking back at the mudslinging, nobody looks very good except maybe the sparrow, but even that is debatable. Also, listeners, what did you think of this two-person show? Did it work? Not work? Should we try it again with a different configuration? Well, let us know. You can email us about it, gaffestatslate.com. Let us know what you think about that. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio of Slate. Follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there. I wonder if we're going to give up on 
Twitter. Are you still on Twitter? I'm I'm still on Twitter nominally. I'm sitting there passively, waiting for it all to melt around me. I don't look at it. Do you look at it? I don't look at it. Not really. For Emily Bazelon and Emily Bazelon, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Hopefully the three of us will talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. How are you? Um, so we see, we saved one aspect of the Clarence Thomas story for Slate Plus because it's it's not really about Clarence Thomas. But the Washingtonian reported this week after it turned out that Harlan Crow was Thomas's secret benefactor, the Washingtonian reported that Harlan Crow has a very weird collection of stuff. So he's this billionaire. He owns a house in Texas. And this house in Texas has some crazy things in it. So it has some Hitler watercolors. It has a bunch of uh, Nazi memorabilia, including napkins with with uh, swastika insignias. It has a signed copy of Mein Kampf. It has a garden of statues of some of the villains of the 20th century, of Lenin, of Mussolini, of uh, Gavril Principe, of Ceausescu. Um, and uh, he also has like stuff that's not by creepy people, like lots of Winston Churchill things and Lincoln memorabilia. Um, so the question is, Emily, is is he indicating something terrible about his personality and his character, possible incipient uh, fascism by having a Hitler landscapes? Um, is it is it is it truly indicative of his personality does it mean something terrible about him is it just bad judgment or is it actually just all okay like fine to have that stuff i feel so torn about this so on the one hand i really don't want to rush to calling someone an incipient fascist or nazi because of some memorabilia they own that just seems like a bad idea and I am influenced here by a piece in The Atlantic that um, Graham Wood, a journalist I respect and like enormously, published. He, I think, hasn't actually been inside the Harlan Crow estate, but he's kind of peeked in the gate a number of times. He had a pretty good sense of what was there. And he was saying, like, please, this man is not a Nazi because he happens to have this stuff. The thing I don't get is why you would have the stuff. And I'm kind of the most fixated on the napkins with the swastikas. Like, it just is such an ordinary object. If you're not fetishizing the Third Reich, why do you go out and get that? Like, what do you think about that? That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 